Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where he asks us to consider how we read the Bible and why it matters. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I have yet to meet you, my name's Tim. Welcome. We're glad you're here. I'm coming, Jeremy. Jared. We got whiteboard today. All right, so here's the challenge. Am I blinding anyone with the glare off of the whiteboard right now? Speak now or forever. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, again, if you're new with us, um, welcome. Uh, I hope that, um, that you've discovered that the people next to you, um, even if you haven't yet to meet, met them or um, even shaken hands or introduce yourself, my hope is just you're starting to catch that there's some of the greatest people uh, in, in West Michigan, I think, on the planet. Um, I, one of the things I am continually reminded of by you all is that uh, this church continues to surprise me in generosity, in the ways you've stepped up in times of crisis. Uh, Pretty incredible stuff. Um, anyway, uh, we're glad you're with us. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Guns N' Roses should be my walkout music. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is on page 1 in your Bible. Um, and by the way, if you have yet to receive, uh, we got our new shipment in. Uh, this week. So if you've yet to receive our devotional, um, they are on tables in the back, right out these doors and on the wall. Um, we would love, it's uh, 39 weeks. Actually, the devotional is 33 weeks. Uh, I'll, I'll explain more when we get there, but um, essentially we're going to take a, a one-week pause between each of the series and try to practice some of this stuff. And, and what does it look like to do Sabbath? And we'll, we'll talk about that at a real practical level. But um, there's 33 weeks of daily devotions some of you started this week and you realized uh, probably the hardest part of putting this devotional together was dividing the things that we're talking about on Sunday, those Genesis readings, into seven chunks that make sense because they're often one long story. Uh, and so this last week, we were just setting up Genesis, which means for some of you, every devotion this week was Genesis 1, 1 and 2, right? Like, so it gets better, I promise. But, um, but if... Uh, if you haven't yet started, if you, if you came in late um, or didn't grab one, weren't able to get one last week, my suggestion would be just to start with us now. So you'll be in week two. Um, you can try to make up ground, but uh, if you want to be tracking with the sermons each week, we are on week two beginning today. So the Sunday of week two will be today's devotion. Um, and, uh, and again, this is our gift to you. Uh, it costs about 10 bucks, $10 a book to print. So if, uh, if you can help out with that, that'd be fantastic. Um, but, but don't let that be a barrier. So anyway, we're 39 weeks in Genesis. We are in Genesis. Last week, we set things up. This morning, we are going to dive in. Uh, the Bible begins with these words. Genesis 1, verse 1. Uh, in the beginning, in Hebrew, it's one word, uh, and it, it means in beginning. Um, so when, when God began. In beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let's pause there. Uh, for many of us, those are really familiar words. Um, if you grew up in the church, they're familiar words. If you uh, ever started, like, uh, I'm just going to start reading my Bible. The, those are the words you probably started with. You opened it up, you read those words. Uh, if you've been at South Harbor for any length of time, we've come back to this passage again and again and again. And, uh, and the reason, as we explored last week, is because... Jesus and the early Christians come back to this passage again and again and again. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's a, an important passage. But what I want to do this morning, in, uh, to kind of, we're, we're, we're slow rolling into Genesis. We're going to get into some really complicated stories that I think are really profound. But we're going to slow roll it a bit. I want to uh, ask the question this morning, how do we read the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? What's a, what's a helpful way to read this book um, that allows, us, uh, allows the truths it's trying to teach to come out? And what are maybe some ways that aren't so helpful? 
Uh, there are some questions that the Bible wants us to ask. So the authors of this, they, they want us to ask certain questions and they will tee things up hoping that we say, what are you about? We, we should think about you. There's other questions that the Bible isn't really interested in, in answering. Um, when we ask them, often these are the questions we put onto the text. Um, things like, um, why doesn't the Bible talk about dinosaurs? I mean, that's, that's a question we put onto the text, um, but the, the text doesn't really want to answer that question for us. And so oftentimes you find, as you, as you work your way through the scriptures, we will ask certain questions of the text that the text isn't interested in answering. So we then will go into the text trying to find, okay, what is the answer to, uh, was the earth created in seven literal days or did God have a process of sorts? Well, that's a question we ask of the text, but the, the text itself doesn't ask that question to us. So what, what I want to explore this morning is how do we answer some of these questions? How do we read the, 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 the Bible um, at, asking the questions it wants to ask? Um, so what is the purpose of it all? How do we read this book? Um, what I want to do, uh, beginning, I'll, I'll give you a handful this week, and then we'll just kind of continue to add to our repertoire. But I want to give you a set of tools. Um, actually, they're more like games. Um, so we'll frame it as games. I want to give you a, a, a handful of games that you can begin playing when it comes to reading the Bible that will help us uh, learn the most, see the most, explore the most. Uh, it'll take you on a journey. Um, when we were in the, the Gospel of Matthew, I introduced you to a bunch of uh, kind of first century ways of reading the text. I want to add to some, if you weren't here then, don't worry about it, but I want to add to that list with a uh, series of games. And so I want to teach you games that, I want to give you a series of games that you played in kindergarten and uh, way back in the day, and you, you learned how to, they're not complicated games, they're not hard games, but if you apply those same kinds of games to the biblical text, I think what you'll discover is you start seeing all kinds of connections that maybe you missed before. So um, I, I don't mean to be patronizing here, but we're going to go back to kindergarten this morning. We're going to play some games together, uh, and um, so you got to like put yourself back in that mindset. When life was just all curiosity and your imaginations were running wild and um, the, you, you pull out your carpet square. Do they still do carpet squares? I should ask my wife. Yeah, they pull out your carpet square and your snack and your milk with the thing. Kindergarten games. Here's game number one uh, to play when it comes to the biblical text. Game number one is draw it. Draw it. Um, now, um, we're going to play it together. So initially, I was going to have a volunteer come up, and I'm like, that could go all kinds of sideways. So we're not going to do that. Uh, we are going to draw it, though. I want to, um, you all have to participate. If you have a piece of paper, um, pull it out. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just use your imagination. Okay, so um, try to draw it in your head. I want to put the words that we just read back up on the screen. And uh, I'm going to give you just a few minutes to draw this in your head. Uh, or if you have a piece of paper, try drawing it on a piece of paper. I, um, this was... This, actually, this passage was uh, my introduction to biblical Hebrew, Professor Tom Bogart. This was his first exercise with us to try to help us understand what we were reading. He said, here, I want you to all draw this. So we got a piece of paper and we had to draw this. Okay, so I'm going to give you like, I don't know, four or five minutes to do that. Um, while we do that, I want to introduce you to a second game. Can we do two games at the same time? Okay, so um, while you're creating your Mona Lisa, okay, your, your masterpiece, uh, we're going to play a second game, uh, and that second game is, what kind of story is this? Uh, this is a game that uh, kindergartners do all the time, right? Like you sit around in the circle, and you have the book, and you, you learn early on, is this a true story? Is this a not true story? Does, um, you learn the certain code words like, uh, once upon a time, or, and if it, if it begins with that and it ends with, and they all lived happily ever after, that's a certain kind of story. Um, if you pull out a newspaper and you read dates and facts, that's a different kind of story. What kind of story is, is this story? One of the, the questions I want us to learn to ask of the biblical text is what genre is it? Um, the Bible has lots of genres. There are lots of different kinds of genres. What genre am I reading when I'm reading this text? Uh, my classic example, which is now getting, it's getting dated, but um, think back to where you were on September 11, 2001. The reason I say it's getting dated is because some of you weren't around. Um, so I, I need a new metaphor. But uh, think back to uh, if you were around, I think you'll be fine. If you weren't around, you'll, you'll be able to figure it out. Um, but think back to uh, where you were on September 11, 2001, or maybe it's a different milestone date in, uh, in your life. Something big happened in the world. Uh, I was a freshman 
in college, and um, I was sitting in a history class, and I think it was a history class, and then uh, uh, somebody came in our room, whispered something to my professor. My professor pulled, uh, pulled, like, pulled aside this guy, went outside, and then came back in and says, okay, we're going to stop the class, and he put on the TV, and he said, if you want to watch here, you can, otherwise um, the class is dismissed. And that's when we learned that there was an attack on American soil, and we saw it all kind of play out, those of us who stayed back. September 11th, remember where you were. Now, when, when that event happened, there was a number of different genres of literature at play all at the same time. Everyone was talking about that. For that moment, everyone in the world was talking about that moment. Uh, you had the New York Times, and the New York Times was writing an article many articles, and they were trying to report what happened. They're trying to record history, to be as factually accurate as possible with what happened. You then had the Grand Rapids Press, and the Grand Rapids Press is also trying to report history. It's trying to record details, but they're not exactly the same. The details, many of them are, are really, really close, but language is a bit different. New York Times is going to use language like we in our city. And uh, the Grand Rapids Press is going to talk about New York. And um, it's still our country, so we still use the word our, but it's not our city. But both are trying to record history. Then at the same time, uh, the, I've, been, I've never dug into the statistics, so I'm not sure if it was accurate. But at the time, everyone was talking about how the Sunday after 9-11 was one of the highest attended worship services across the nation. Everyone kind of showed back up to church. Um, and pastors had sermons, and pastors would preach the sermon often. I remember the sermon that was preached at Hope College. It was on a passage, um, an Old Testament passage of, if, if my people would only return to prayer, I want to heal. God says, I want to heal the land. So, several sermons were about that. Others, other sermons were, um, God meets us in times of hardship and trial. And so you have these sermons. They, the sermons weren't as interested in recording uh, most pastors probably weren't as interested in saying, here's what happened, and here's how it happened, and here's when it happened. They were more interested in saying, okay, where is God in this? How do we understand what God's doing in this? So the genre of the sermon is different than the genre of the newspaper. One is history and fact. One is, where's God in this? How do we hold faith in this? At the same time, you had scientists, and the scientists were getting together and trying to figure out, okay, how do you have... Uh, the Twin Towers fall at that speed. How did the impact of those uh, planes cause the, the devastation that they caused? And so they're talking about um, the, you know, the, the speed of the plane and um, how the, you know, the temperature of, of jet engine fluid or gas when it burns up. They're, they're looking at science questions. They're asking science questions. So that's a genre. Science is a genre. Newspapers, history, fact, the genre, sermons are a genre. At the same time, this is all playing out. You've got the singer-songwriter genre, and they're recording songs about what happened. So you've got uh, Toby Keith, and Toby Keith's trying to explain what he saw as, as happening and how it felt. That's what songwriters are trying to do, not history or fact, not science, not sermons. They're trying to record how does this feel. So he, he's got, he writes a, a pretty... You remember the song? He talks about Lady Liberty shaking her fist. Okay, uh, Then you've got um, a really, I think a really powerful song, Alan Jackson. Remember that song? Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? So remember him, I think it was the Grammys where he sat down on the stage and played that song. It was like, pfft. different genres. Now, um, each of these genres serves a function. Each has a purpose. Imagine with me if uh, you were to take all those artifacts, the articles, the sermons, the songs, the, uh, the science lab reports, you would put them all in a box, bury that box in the ground or hide that box away somewhere. And then 5,000 years from now, so future humans, we look inside the box and we pull the box up and we say, okay, what happened on September 11, 2001? What actually played out? And you've got a group of people who say, these foolish, 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 dumb you know, 21st century Americans, they actually thought that the earth stopped turning on September. We, like enlightened, educated, uh, you know, 5,000 years from now people, we all know that that's impossible. If that were to happen, if the earth stopped turning, the, like one side would fry, the other side would freeze, there would be no life as we know it. So those dumb, 
ignorant, barbaric 21st century people. They have no idea how uh, science works. Or they actually thought that the Statue of Liberty could shake her fist. Like that somehow a statue was able to become a human for a moment. Ah, come on. Those dumb 21st century Americans. Now we would hear that and we would be offended saying, no, no, you, you don't understand what you were reading. We all know that you read a song like a song. A song's goal is not to tell you what actually happened. It's to tell you how it felt. Um, how, like, it's, to, it's to communicate a different kind of truth than literal factual truth. Literally, to, in, to interpret the Alan Jackson song literally is literally to misread the intentions of the song. We understand at a very human level that uh, when it comes to genre, understanding how to read a genre literally is as important as understanding how to read it literally. Let me say that again. It's important to read your Bible literally, not just literally. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say, I read, just read the Bible literally. Okay, but if we're not careful, there's different kinds of literature. And a question you have to ask when it comes to the biblical text, because you've got all kinds of different literature genres in your biblical text. You've got sermons, we call them the prophets, They're trying to ask the question, where is God as Babylon is taking over? Where is God as Assyria is taking over? They're asking the where is God questions. If only the people would change. If only they would return to God. Then you've got 1 Kings Chronicles. It's like Grand Rapids Press, New York Times. They're trying to record history from two different locations, but they're trying to write good historical fact. Then you've got your Psalms. And the Psalms are trying to write Poetry, they're songs. And what you find in the book of Genesis is you've got a lot of genres at play in this one little book. So the the question for us, game number two, that you played in kindergarten, is what kind of story is this? Okay, so hold that question. Hopefully by the end of this, we get a sense of maybe this first chapter. Hold that for now. Let's go back to game uh, number one, draw it. Who's got a drawing? Anybody? Anybody got a masterpiece? Draw it. What do you got? Who's got a masterpiece up here? <laughs> what you find in Genesis 1, was it an easy task? Let me ask that question. Was that easy to do? Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, so we read that it's form, the earth is formless and void. The word void means empty. So there's formless and empty. But then we read that that emptiness has a surface. And then we read that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters so is it empty, void, or are there waters that have a surface? I mean, you see, there's these questions that come. It's hard, not, nay I say, without artistic ability, it's almost impossible to draw it literally. How do you draw that literally? All kinds of, now we have a clue from that. Okay, maybe we have a sense of what our author is trying to tell us about what we are about to read, just from that one exercise of drawing it. Now, um, let's continue. I'll be, I'll be your artist. Some of you, uh, if you've been around, I think we, we've done this before. So uh, some of you, hopefully this is some recap. I'll try to move through it quick so as not to bore you. But um, uh, what are we reading when we read Genesis 1? I want to sh- review a few things so we can lay the groundwork for where we're going. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. So day number one. Jared tells me way back here is easier to see than if it's up here. Is that true? You're not going to say Jared's wrong. You're not going to tell me. (laughs) So day one, uh, you've got... So this is day one. You've got a light separated. So we'll go light bulb slash mushroom... Um, separated from dark. And God said it was good. That's day one. Day two, God said that there'd be a vault, a vault, uh, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault, and he separated water water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning on the second day. So day two. We've got, again, we've got, so day one is light separated from dark. Day two, we've got water above 
Separated from water below. So we got, we'll, we'll do that as like a cloud. And then we've got water. That's day two. Day three. Some of you remember this from before? Okay, good, 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 good. Um, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and dry, let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetations, plant bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. So day number three, you've got, again, this language of separation. And now we read that there is water. Here, let's draw it like this. And you've got land. God separates water from land. Also notice, quick tangent, day number three is the only day. So there's a refrain that we're hearing again and again. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Day number three is the only day where God says it is good twice. It is good. Uh, let there be land, uh, land, and it's good. And then let the land produce seed and vegetation. And that seed and that is good. By the time of Jesus, Jewish wedding said, if we're going to pick a day to get married on, we are going to get married on the third day, uh, Tuesday in the Jewish calendar. Why? Because it's the day that God blessed twice. And so we, now what, what they understood about the blessing was God bless, God will bless our marriage. God, would you bless our marriage? Say it is good to our marriage. And God, would you give us kids? Bless the land and bless the fruit of the land. God, would you give us kids? And so they would get married on the third day as a way of saying, God, bless us in our marriage and give us kids. Now, um, in the time after King David, there was uh, the kingdom divides. There's a civil war. A group gets hauled off to Assyria. A group gets hauled off to Babylon. And the prophets, these sermon writers, they begin writing these sermons. And in their sermons, they say again and again that don't worry, don't give up hope. God is sending a Messiah. So by the time of Jesus, the wedding was God, bless our marriage. God, would you please uh, give us kids? And would one of those kids grow up to be your Messiah? Now, the, the reason I tell you that is because on uh, it, the first miracle of Jesus, do you remember the first miracle recorded in the book of John? Jesus uh, is at a city called Cana, and it is on the, which day? The third day, John chapter two, the third day there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee and Jesus performs his first miracle there turning water into wine. And we hear that miracle and we say, later he's gonna raise somebody from the dead. He, like, Jesus, Jesus is gonna heal diseases. He's gonna restore sight to the blind. What an underwhelming miracle to launch your career on Jesus. Why a party trick of turning water into wine? We say that because we don't understand the culture. When we are told that it's the third day, we are told it's a Jewish wedding. This is a Jewish couple. And not only is this a Jewish couple, um, this is a Jewish couple who's getting married on the third day as a way of saying, God, would you bless our marriage? God, would you give us kids? And would one of our kids grow up to be the Messiah? When Jesus turns water into wine at that first miracle, he is in a very Jewish way saying to his world, I am the Messiah. The one you've been praying for is here. Now, we want to say, well, why doesn't he just say that? He does just say that. He just says it as a Jewish person would say it, um, which sometimes requires some work for us to understand. Make sense? I remember when I first saw that, it made me so happy. So I hope somebody is happy. Uh, okay, day four. End of tangent. Day four. And God said that there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, a greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God sent them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was... Good. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. So God says we need to create what? 
Son, and then uh, moon and stars. Only if you read closely, God doesn't say, I'm going to create the sun, the moon, and the stars. God says, I will create a greater light and lesser lights. Why that language? Hold that thought. Day four. Um, By the way, uh, let's introduce the third game while we're on there. Because sometimes you're going to bump into this. Why say it that way? Why do this? Um, Why not just say sun, moon, and stars? Most of the Bible, when it talks about the sun, moon, and stars, refers to the sun, the moon, and the stars as the sun, moon, and stars. Why in Genesis 1 do we have an intentional reading of greater light and lesser light? Not sun, moon, and stars. Here's our third game. This is my favorite game. This is a game that they should play in kindergarten. They probably don't. They probably call it something else, but they should play in kindergarten. I call this game Find the Elephant. Um, for those of you who are around in our Matthew series, this should be a fun game. By the way, this elephant graphic makes me happy. Um, I, don't, I can move that graphic anywhere. It just sits right on top. It's a wonderful graphic. Uh, Find the Elephant. Uh, so if you weren't with us back in the, I think it was the fall of this past year, uh, find the elephant. The game is simple. Um, the game is uh, anytime you come across a problem in the text. So you're reading through the biblical text and you see that there's a problem. Why do they call it the greater light and the lesser light? Why say it this way? Mark it. Don't just read past it. Mark it. Often the problems we come across in the biblical text are signposts. They're, they're arrows pointing at a deeper... The, the author wants us to ask the question. Often the the solution to understanding the text fully comes in asking the question. But you got to pay attention. What is the elephant? We'll play this game a little bit, probably quite a bit in the Genesis series. What is the elephant in the text? Um, Okay, I was going to share one from next week, but I'll save it for next week. Uh, What is the elephant? you got to go slow to do this work. Um, One of my favorite rabbis, a guy named David Foreman, he describes uh, these sorts of problems in our text as buried treasure. And he says, if we're patient with the scriptures, if we're patient, the scriptures will, will point to where the buried treasure is and will give us a treasure map. But you got to find the problems, what we see as problems. Uh, let me give you a handful of them that we've come into or bumped into already. Uh, here's a problem. Was the earth formless and void or was there surface and water? That's a problem the text wants us to pick up on. It's, it's not a contradiction. It's a contradiction in the sense of, Pay attention to me. I'm trying to tell you something. I'm trying to show you something. Um, here's one. Uh, when, uh, did God put a vault in the sky to separate the water above from the water below? That's the word vault. Is, is there like a ceiling up there somewhere? And if, uh, is it like the Truman Show where if you just go up high enough, is that a bad reference? Uh, if you go up high enough, you're going to bump into a ceiling. Is, is there a ceiling somewhere? But that raises a, a, a scientific problem. We've gone up and we've yet to bump into a ceiling. You read the Noah story and it'll say that the vault essentially shatters. Okay, so what's, what's going on? That's why the rain, what do, we, how do we, what do we make of this text? Okay, that's a problem. Um, how about this one? God creates light on day one, but he doesn't create the sun until day four. How do you have light without the sun? It's a problem, isn't it? It's, a, it's an elephant. What do we do with that elephant? Um, here's an elephant. Uh, if, uh, if, You've got, um, so, so day one, how do they know it's day one before there's a sun? Okay, so how do you know that this was day one? Uh, and how do you know this is day two? And how do you know this is day three before the sun? The way we know which day is which day is by the sun. So how did they know which day was day one and which day was day two? It's a problem in, our, uh, problem in it. Uh, here's one. Um, uh, God produces vegetation on day three, but the sun... On day four, how do you get plants without this? Are these not photo? I mean, this is like maybe third grade photosynthesis. How do you get plants without the sun? Like, are these, because problem, this is, they, they want you to see this problem. Uh, how about this one? Um, this, this is one that we ask of the text, but where are the dinosaurs? Dinosaurs are awesome. Like, why not mention them? Why, the whole Bible, there's no mention of dinosaurs. Like, just maybe one paragraph would be kind of cool. Why no dinosaurs? Why does the Bible not ask the question, not talk about dinosaurs? Weird stuff. Pay attention to the elephants. Find the elephant. That's your, that's your next game. Okay, what game are we on? That's game three. 
Game three, okay, back to the text. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the, the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. Fifth day, you got to draw it. You've got water has fish and the sky has birds. Day five, day six. And God said that the land produced living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. So people are created in the image of who? God. Okay, note it. Just note it. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So day six, you've got, God creates what? Animals. What kind of animals? What, dinosaurs? <laughs> oh, how do I draw a Dinosaur. That's a good dinosaur. <laughs> Needs some teeth. There we go. Uh, what, other, what else does God create on day six? People, okay. Male and female, God created people. There. He's already created the fish, so they're in there too yet. Day six, and yeah, plants are... We got some plants according to their kind. Yeah, the world is, is finished. Uh, let's wrap up the story. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, some of you, that's recap. Stay with me on this. Uh, three games we've learned. Um, first game, draw it, draw it. Super helpful, I promise you, in many of your stories. If you just draw it, you'll start to see some patterns. Uh, second game, what kind of story is this? What kind of story is this? Third game, find the elephant. Here's a fourth game. I call this game patterns. Patterns. My kids, I remember when they'd come home and uh, they had learned about patterns and you know, things that rhyme, things that repeat. And uh, they started seeing patterns everywhere. Like little QAnon people, like there's patterns everywhere. Uh, they saw them everywhere, but it was, it was fun to hear like that rhymes with that and that rhymes with that. And I was, it was uh, patterns, okay? So look for patterns, things that rhyme, things that repeat. Have there been any patterns that we've seen in the first six days? Anything repeat? Yeah, and God said, and it, was, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and God said, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and God said, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. When you read Genesis 1, there is like a rhythm to the whole thing. There's like a cadence to the whole thing. There's like a beat to the whole thing. Now, the, the power of repetition, so in, in our world, if we want something to stand out, we put it in all caps, or we put it in bold, like, because we're a written culture, but to an oral culture, the power of repetition, the, the way you get something to stand out is you repeat it. It's how you underline something in an oral culture. You repeat it again and again and again. Uh, so, so you have to ask the question, what, 
Okay, back to game two. What kind of story is this? <clears throat> Every, I'm gonna say something controversial, okay. Every respected, uh, I, I would say every, maybe, I'm sure there's an outlier, but um, every respected biblical theologian, scholar that I can find will agree that Genesis 1 is a poem. Take it in. Um, every, they'll, they'll, it, it's indented in your Bible because it's a, everyone, they'll all agree. You, you probably will not be able to find a counterexample, maybe somewhere, but probably not. Now, we hear that, and that's controversial to us, because we live in a land that says poetry is less real. Poetry is less true. We take things like science and history accounts and uh, lab reports. That's truth. <clears throat> that's true. But poetry, that's like fluffy, that's airy. Like that's, that's from, uh, he's into poetry. Like, like, like poetry, we kind of look down on. But understand that the world of the first of, of your text, 5,000, is an oral culture. It will take several, arguably thousands of years, Babylon captivity, for the book of Genesis to be written down. <clears throat> Up until then, it was passed along orally. And in an oral culture, poetry is the, the most important. If you want something to stick... If you, want, if you want to make sure that no word gets lost in the retelling of a story, that you don't lose any of it, you get every single word passed down to the next generation. The way you do that is by making sure it's sticky. And poetry is by nature sticky. Let me give an example. Uh, <clears throat> who here by memory has, can, can recite to me verse 8 from the fourth chapter of the Apostle John's first letter. I bet some of you can, um, because there was a song. It was big in the 90s. If you grew up in church culture in the 90s, there was a song. You may know this song. It goes something like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He who loveth not, loveth not God, for God is love, <laughs> beloved, let us love one another. <laughs> Some of you are like, I have no idea what that's. Okay. The power of poetry, the power of putting it to song, to put it, putting it to rhythm, is it makes it sticky. Poetry is not a less real or less true. It's in many ways, if you want to make sure not one single word is lost, you put it down like this. Now, the power of poetry is to pick up on the patterns. And where do the patterns break? Turns out in the book of Genesis, especially Genesis 1. So not all of Genesis is written as poetry. You'll see this. There's many genres in Genesis. But in Genesis 1, the power of this particular poem is there are patterns everywhere that want us to catch them. Let me give you a handful. Um, there are patterns of three. Uh, the word bara. Um, to create, that uh, it appears in three places, at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of the poem. At the end, when Barah appears, it appears three times in rapid succession. Barah, Barah, Barah. There are three days of separation and three days of filling. That's threes. Uh, then you have patterns of seven. Now, there's a lot of patterns of seven. Um, there are seven days of creation, um, but seven shows up in a number of other places. Uh, there are seven words in the first verse, 14, seven times two, in the second verse, it was so, appears seven times, and God saw, appears seven times. There are 21, seven times three, uh, mentions of earth. There are 28, seven times four, letters in the first verse, 35, seven times five, uh, words in the seventh verse of the poem, 35, seven times five, mentions of God, there are over a dozen patterns of seven in just the first chapter. <clears throat> it's all really, really intricately crafted. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, that feels fishy. That feels, listen, there's enough people drawing connections to things that don't make sense, right? So some of you are like, ah, oh, my QAnon, QAnon radar is going off there. You're just finding patterns anywhere. Okay, there, 
hold that. Maybe you're like, I don't buy that. Okay, fine, that's fine. Um, but there are patterns in Genesis that uh, the, the rabbis in particular say are absolutely intentional. Even if you say those aren't intentional, I think they are. But there are patterns that the rabbis say are 100% absolutely intentional. Um, for instance, there is a, a form of writing that was really popular in the ancient world. Now, we don't use this form of writing anymore, so we have to learn it. Um, but the form of writing, I'm going to reintroduce you to this because we're going to see it again and again in Genesis. Um, but the form of writing is known as in, in the, he, the rabbis refer to it as an atbash. Um, literary scholars refer to it as a chiasm. So chiasm is probably easier um, to remember. Chiasm, chiasm. You find a lot of chiasm uh, inside of Genesis. What's a chiasm? A chiasm is when the text intentionally mirrors itself. So one of the things you're going to be paying attention to as you read through Genesis is, are there numbers? Does it kind of sound like the, the author is repeating themselves a lot? There's a good chance what you're looking at there then is a chiasm. It intentionally mirrors itself. Um, Genesis 17 is one giant chiasm. Uh, the book of Mark is written as a chias- in chiastic structure. Um, Genesis 1 is a chiasm. Um, The sun goes in the light. The moon and the stars go in the night. Birds go in the sky. Fish go in the sea. Animals go on the land. Fish are in the sea. The whole thing is like days, day four. So the, the dominant language of the second three days of creation is language of fill. The dominant language of the first three days of creation is the language of Separate. In fourth grade, I had a teacher who told me that there is a rat in separate. I've always gotten it right ever since then. Because uh, you want to say this too, don't you? Yeah. Separate. Um, you've got this language of separation and then this language of, I got to fill what I separate. Paul, by the way, when Paul talks about you, he says, what God began in you he will, com- he will carry through to completion. He'll fill it. He'll finish it. Paul understands Genesis 1. He understands the chiasm of Genesis 1. Now, even more. Is that interesting? I find it so interesting. Okay, now, um, I find chiasm is brilliant. Um, but here's a game we can play. Uh, this is a, there's a kindergarten game with a chiasm that we can play. Um, this is, it's actually in the name chiasm. The word chiasm means crossing or intersection. So for those of you who are generation goonies, who are generation goonies, my wife revealed to me the, uh, my wife revealed to me the other day that's her favorite movie of all time, Goonies. Uh, generation Goonies. Uh, think of it as a giant X marks the spot. Okay, so remember when you used to bury treasure? Anybody else bury treasure and then give your like brother or sister a treasure map and they had to go find the treasure? Just me. Okay, uh, this is like a, think of it as a giant X marks the spot. For instance, uh, the gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. Uh, so if it's X marks the spot, what the rabbis will say, the import, and literary scholars will say, is the importance of a chiasm is dead center. Okay, so X marks the spot. If you want to know the point of the passage, Find the center of the passage. Uh, Mark has 16 chapters. The center of that is Mark chapter 8. The center of Mark chapter 8, if you look at it carefully, is this declaration by Peter. Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. What's Mark's point? Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's in the chiasm. Now, that raises the question as we look at uh, this particular passage. What's the center of Genesis 1? Center of Genesis 1 is a single Hebrew word. Moad. Moad is uh, found in this section. Uh, is day four. Moad is translated sacred times. Now it's one, uh, that specific word is translated in English in four different ways. Festivals, sacred times, I forget the third, and then Sabbath. Day seven is Sabbath. What is the point of of Genesis 1? At at a fundamental level, the point is Sabbath. Now you're thinking, that's really underwhelming. I remember when I was like, wait a minute, why is that the point of 
Genesis 1. Like the, the point is Sabbath. But understand the audience. The first audience of this particular book were a group of recently freed slaves. For 430 years, they were, uh, they were slaves of, in Egypt under Pharaoh. Um, let me read you Exodus chapter 1. It says that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. For 430 years, it's bricks, 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 bricks. Your value, your worth is in how much you produce. How strong is your back? How many bricks can you make? Brick, brick, brick. Every single day, more bricks. God has to lead his people out of slavery. Now, in order to get them out of slavery, he's got to get slavery out of them. He's got to get Egypt out of them. He's got to give them a better story. And so what do you do to give them a better, a new story? You tell them this one. Now, um, this creation story, the Egyptians also had a creation story, by the way. Um, their, their God, their chief God, is a God by the name of Amun-Ra. It's a picture of Amun-Ra. <laughs> Greatest receiver. Not that Amun-Ra. Uh, this is a picture of Amun-Ra. Uh, now, notice Amun-Ra. What's above his head? The sun. He's the sun God. He's the sun God. Why does Genesis, in the telling of this story, intentionally say the greater light and the lesser light? Don't worship the sun. It's not Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra is not the one who gives you sun. and light. Don't worship it. The temptation is always to worship the creation. So God is very clear. Um, now, I'm going to show you a picture of the Pharaoh. Uh, notice how similar Pharaoh looks to the chief God. The gods are created in the image of people. What is Genesis 1 really intentional about? No, people are created in the image of God. It's in the story for a reason. The writing is there for a reason. Uh, also notice what's in Pharaoh's hand, the stick. Um, the way Pharaoh would lead is with a staff. And if you stood up against him, you would be beat with the staff. What do you find Moses have to learn how to do? Moses, learn how to use your staff, not to beat, but to protect. Not to beat, but to lead. When Moses gets it wrong and he starts using his, God says, no, that's enough. That's enough, Moses. Why the story this way? I, I picture um, a grandpa sitting down with his granddaughter and she wants to know like, okay, what? Um, grandpa, you've got a lot of scars. Where'd those scars come from? And grandpa's trying to explain to his granddaughter, they, they had us in slavery. But how do you explain that to a little girl? How do, you, how do you explain it? How do you explain that when you were a slave, God led you out, he brought you to the desert, he gave you a set of commandments. At the heart of the, the commandments was this commandment of Sabbath. How do you explain to her the, 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 the importance and the power of Sabbath? For her, it's, she doesn't get to, the, there's no work to be done. She doesn't understand it. She, you try to explain it through law and rules. For her, all law and rules are is mom and dad get mad at you when you break them. How do you explain it to a little girl? Perhaps you start with a story. As grandpa, perhaps what you say is, can I tell you a story? When God created the heavens and the earth, and you begin telling this story, this, this, and as this little girl grows up, you watch her begin to catch the story. So grandpa, are you telling me that the, the point that God needed to show you out in that desert was that you get to rest, that you can stop? And then you're waiting um, you're waiting for her to catch it. To ask the question, you know eventually she'll ask. Why does God need to rest? Why did God rest on day seven? God doesn't, need, God doesn't get tired. Why does God rest? And as grandpa, you say, ah, it's the best question yet. Why does God rest? Did you notice the pattern? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Do you notice when the pattern got broken? And it was very good. When God made you, he broke the pattern. He needed you to see this. Why does God rest? Because he wants to enjoy it. He wants to enjoy you. And I picture a grandpa, like, smile grows. Um, God created the world with the same joy to spend time with you that your grandpa has when he gets to spend time with you. 
God creates people on day six, and their first task is to stop, to rest, to enjoy it. Now, there's work to be done. There's going to be work to be done, of course. But the first task of humanity was simply to enjoy it. Uh, There are two stories at war for our hearts. We've been unpacking these. There are two stories at war for our hearts. There is what I would call the anti-story, and it is the dominant story of our world. You are what you produce. You are what you make. Your influence comes in how many things you can sell, how many likes you get on social media. We are in a world that calls salespeople influencers. That's the anti-story. That's bricks, 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 bricks. But there's another story at War for Your Heart, a story that begins with joy. The God of the universe created you. He didn't waste one single breath. He created the whole thing in this this beautiful order so that you could see at the end of it that God created you to spend time. You do not have to earn it. You do not have to produce more. God simply made you to enjoy it. There are two stories that work for our hearts. One story is an invitation to keep producing so that someday you'll have worth and value. The other story at work for our hearts is trust God, trust where he's going. As you'll see, as people begin to lean into the story God has been telling, um, what they are able to do is take tremendous risks. What they're able to do is do tremendous feats. And anytime they go back to the other story, it's constant devastation. My point today, how do we read the Bible? There are questions the Bible wants us to ask. We need to learn how to ask them. There are questions the Bible is just simply not interested in us. It has no answers for us. It's not looking for... um, One of my favorite stories uh, is... uh, Do you know the name Ray Vanderlaan? Ray Vanderlaan, um, uh, he's a a biblical scholar, teacher at Holland Christian... He says he was sitting in the back of a classroom, heard his professor, this, this rabbi, esteemed rabbi teaching. He decides after class to go approach his rabbi and he asks the rabbi a question. He says, Rabbi, do you think the earth was created in seven literal days or do you think evolution was the process? And his rabbi said, huh, never thought about that before. This guy had the biblical text memorized. His point, he obviously thought of it. His point was the biblical text isn't asking us to think about that. They're important questions. You should ask them. But the biblical text is asking us a deeper question. Why was it created? Who is this God? What is he like? Okay. Would you pray with me? Lord. Uh, We ask that as we continue to study Genesis, you'd give us sharp minds. Lord, help help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to ask the questions you desire us to ask. Lord, help us to be endlessly curious. And Lord, would you shape us more and more and more into your image? We want to look like you. Lord, would you help us to put away the work that um, just continues to want to turn us into producers? And Lord, would you help us remember that we are human beings created in your image, Uh, Lord, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.